The first reading is from Exodus chapter 6, reading verses 5 to 8. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, from who the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, I say to the the, Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you and of possession, I am the Lord. The second reading is from Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I am the Lord your God. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbour. Amen. So, long story short, over the past three weeks, we have talked about creation and promise and exodus. And today I want to talk about a theme that really sets up future weeks. And the theme for today is covenant Perhaps those of you who are married uh, did some uh, pre-marriage course of of some sort with uh, someone before uh, your wedding. And 
I hope then you will have talked about the difference between contract and covenant. Today, these words are often used interchangeably, but actually they have quite different meanings. A contract is an exchange, but a covenant is a commitment. How many of you have been to a wedding ceremony? A few. Good. Good. That's good. One of the most beautiful and meaningful events that we have in our culture. People sit and they wait through the early parts of the service until you get to the moment of the vows. And partly you're just wondering if that person who never ever shows emotion will suddenly crack and burst into tears or whether the person who is always emotional will just have a complete meltdown. You get to that moment. And then, of course, the best man does the obligatory, oh dear, I don't know where I put the ring thing, you know. Um, And then the bride and groom turn to face each other and begin the vows that they are going to make. And at that moment, they don't use contractual language. There's a reason that I don't invite you all uh, to my contractual signing for my iPhone. It's because it's completely and utterly boring. It's it's full of small print. It's a functional two-year agreement that I make with a company to give me a phone. It's simply a business transaction. But can you imagine at the wedding... The happy couple turn and they look towards each other and begin to talk small print. Oh, well, I'll agree to marry you as long as you agree to do the dishes every night. Well, well, I'll agree to do that as long as you agree to do the garden. Oh, well, I'll agree to do that as long as you take the bins out. Oh, well, okay, I'll agree. Oh, no, 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 I'm not having that one. We'll need to negotiate that. I mean, what on earth would you think if you were at that service. You would wonder what on earth was going on. And if they went into that kind of contractual agreement, what would you do as an onlooker? You would be wondering, is it actually a marriage or not? Because marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. It's an all-in, give-my-whole-life proposition not a, I'm going to try it out for a couple of days. You know, I have 14-day money-back guarantee. I read an article that in Mexico City, they've decided on a plan to grant temporary marriage licenses so that after two years, you can just allow it to dissolve and you go your separate ways or you decide you're going to renew it for another couple of years. I don't know whether you think that's a good idea or not, um, but... What it does is redefine marriage as a contract. In case you're wondering, I think it's a bad idea. Just saying. Covenant isn't practiced when you feel like it. It's not easy. It's a commitment. And it's hard to maintain. It takes work. And today I want to outline a number of things. The basis, the result, the beauty, and the fulfillment of biblical covenant. Okay? The basis, the result, the beauty, and the fulfillment of biblical covenant. We start with the basis. 
of the covenant. And the basis of any covenant is promise. We saw that in the passage today. If you were to attend a Jewish seder, you would go in and there'd be five cups on the table. Cups filled with wine. The host would encourage you to pick up the first cup, to drink it, to honor that God has brought us out. That's what we read in chapter 6, verse 6. I will bring you out from the yoke of the Egyptians. And then you take the second cup of wine and you drink it. And you honor that God has delivered you from bondage. He says, I will free you from being slaves. The third cup honors that God has redeemed you. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. And the fourth cup is tied in with the statement in verse 7 that God has taken them as his people and will be their God. Because that's what he said. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. So these are the four elements of the redemption that you drink. You take them in. And you actively participate. And when you do that, you realize that redemption is from God. That we are no longer slaves. That nothing can hold us down. That freedom comes in God to live a new life for him on earth. But here's where we have to be careful. Because in Western society, in Western culture... It's easy to begin simply focusing on the benefits of the covenant relationship. We immediately go to, what can I get out of this? And it's something that we need to think about for ourselves. Think about your prayers. When you're praying, what's the content of those prayers? Is it all about what you need? Is it all about what you want God to do for you? What about when you're talking about him to other people? Do you only share the good stuff, the blessings that come from knowing him? Or do you talk about the fact that you need to change? You need to seek forgiveness? It's a kind of consumer mentality that we've come to in approaching God. But that's not what a covenant relationship is. We know that friendship is not about what you can get from the other person. It's about what you can invest, about what you can give to the other person. But what approach do we take when it comes to God? The, the, kind of, the milestone, the hallmark of covenant is this. You are my people. That's the promise that God makes. It's his commitment of love of covenant to us. Dr. Tim Keller talks about the effect of culture on our mindset. And he says that sociologists uh, argue uh, that in contemporary Western society, the marketplace has become so dominant that the consumer model increasingly characterizes most relationships. That historically we were covenantal, but today we stay connected to people only as long as they are meeting our particular need at an acceptable cost to us. When we cease to get uh, as much out of it that we are putting in, that's when we drop them. That's when the relationship goes. I love this definition. Covenant is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. Covenant. 
an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. Contract is transactional. Covenant is relational. Contract is dependent on the terms. Covenant is regardless of the terms. Contracts involve assurances. Covenants involve oaths. There's a reason that we still, even in a secular society, hold certain offices to make an oath, like the military, police, doctors, public officials. We make them take an oath or make a promise because our lives are in their hands. So we want them to promise before God that they're going to do the best they can in their roles. Again, God says, you will be my people. So the basis of covenant is the promise, and the result of covenant is protection. We see right there, there are two kinds of benefits of covenantal protection. The first we see salvific protection, and then we see preemptive protection. And it starts in verse 1 of the chapter that we read. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So there's salvation. But then the preemptive protection comes just after that. And what we've read today is the Ten Commandments. And for time purposes, I'm going to stick just to the main uh, points. You shall have no other gods before me. You should not make for yourselves graven images. You should not misuse the name of the Lord. Remember the Sabbath day uh, by keeping it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And you shall not covet. And people look at that and think, oh, so overbearing. Why do we have to keep all that? How can we keep all that? But it's not God trying to be overbearing and make our lives hard. This is a father trying to love his children and teach them how to live and to lead their life. When our children were very small, for example, in teaching them to cross the road, we had to show them, we had to set an example, and, and then we had to say, don't do it on your own. There are rules, and if you break those rules, there could be really serious and significant consequences. That's what we do with children. We have to teach them. We have to train them. There are rules within which they're expected to live. But we don't do that because we don't like them. We do it because we love them and we want to keep them safe. We want to keep them from harm. Sometimes with God... We experience discipline and we just take it as kind of potential pain that we've got to go through. But actually, it's the opposite. God is saying that he wants to discipline us. But it's so that we can stay clear of things that might harm us. Some of us have a hard time um, understanding the importance of expectations that God puts on us in the form of these commands. It's easy to, to simply write them off as, as limitations when we can't see the benefit, when we can't understand the benefit of everything that we are called to do by God, then sometimes we're just going to shrug it off. Personally speaking, there are times that I see God's Word, and I know what I'm supposed to do, and I see the benefit, so I go, yes, okay. That's pretty straightforward. There are times when I see the words of Scripture, 
And I know that's going to be difficult to do, but I still see the benefit. And so I try to be obedient. And there are times in my relationship with God when I'm called to do something that I cannot understand and I don't see the benefit in. I just don't get it. And the question is, do I obey in those circumstances? There's a difference between contract and covenant. Do we trust God or do we use God? Do we see him just as an advisor who sits off to the side so that we can take from him what we want and what we need? Or do we truly live in covenantal relationship where we put our faith and our trust in him no matter what? We see that the people step into a covenant relationship with God. And then in Exodus chapter 33, verse 12, Moses says to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. And in verse 14, the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. The result of the covenant is protection, but the beauty of the covenant is presence. After Moses entered into the covenant, it says that he would go to the tent of meeting. And in that tent, he met with God. The pillar of cloud comes down so that the people know that that's what's going on. And he goes in and he spends time with God. It says, you know, sometimes when he came out, he had to cover his face because it was so bright, because he had been with God. Moses spent time in fellowship and relationship, in covenant with God. And the Ten Commandments were the product of spending time with him. They're not just random laws that were collected. They're a reflection of the character of God. When it says to have no other gods, that's a declaration of God's sovereignty. When it says don't make other graven images, it reveals his transcendence and his jealousy. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain points to his holiness. Keeping the Sabbath day reminds us of God's rest and his creativity. Honoring your father and mother reminds us that God is in community. Don't murder reveals that God gives and takes away. He is the creator he is the redeemer, the restorer, the sustainer of life, that he gives it in abundance to us. Don't commit adultery shows the faithfulness of God. Don't steal points to the providence of God. Don't bear false witness declares that God is truth. Don't covet points to the sufficiency of God. And so we know that these are not just a set of commands, a set of do's and don'ts, but that God Almighty desires to know every single one of us intimately and calls each of us to intimate relationship and into intimate experience of him and intimate love with the one who created you and desires to be in covenant with you. It's a record of the character of God. And these commandments are a revelation of who he is. And he sets a high bar because he wants us to live a high life. Because he has high standards for his people. God's law reveals his love and it also conveys his presence. Each law reveals a piece of his heart. And when we see this, it creates an almost cyclical relationship 
when we look back at the commands, we see that there's a kind of paradigm in there, a process of growth, if you will. The first four commandments are, are about us and God. Honoring your father and mother. There's something in there about acknowledging authority, and it's like a bridge to the rest. That bridge takes us to the last five commandments, which are about loving others. And what happens when you try to love your neighbor? Well, you realize how much you need God in order to be able to do it. And that takes you back. The last thing is that there is fulfillment of the covenant. And that is through the payment that Jesus paid. The Hebrew word for covenant comes from the root word to cut. It's a reference back to the Old Testament ceremony of covenant where both parties would cut an animal sacrifice in half and they would lay at the sides down with enough space to allow both parties to walk between the halves. And they're essentially saying, if we don't live up to this covenant, what happened to these animals might happen to us. It's a serious business. You see, there's a payment to be made when you step out of covenant. But the beauty of our story is that although every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible says we have all sinned, we have all messed up, we have all failed, every single one of us in this place and online. Every one of us has broken covenant with God. But God is so desperate to be in relationship with us that he sent his son Jesus to the earth and he paid the price for our failure. His body was broken and his blood was shed. He took, as it were, our cuts on himself. And he did it so that we might be restored once again to covenant relationship with God. Some of you might have thought, that I had forgotten about cup number five in the Seder. This last cup remains on the table, untouched. It's called the cup of Elijah. And if you go back to Jeremiah chapter 25 and Malachi chapter 4, you'll see there it is called the cup of wrath. And in this ceremony, when it comes to that moment, the door is opened and the head of the household says this, pour out your wrath on the world. Well, in Matthew chapter 26, we see Jesus with his disciples in the garden of Gethsemane and he is in torment, knowing what is to come. He prays to his father and he says, if there any other way, will you take this cup from me? Well, what is that cup that he's talking about? It's the cup of wrath. You see, he drinks our sin. He drinks our failure. He drinks our insufficiencies. And he drinks it so that we can live. Jesus and his disciples have just celebrated the Last Supper. When they've gone through this ceremony, and I wonder as well, you know, as, as trying to, to use it as a teaching moment for his friends, was Jesus sitting there soaking in the idea that we are delivered, 
that God has brought us out. He has picked us up. He has defeated the brokenness and sin in our life, that he's delivered us, that he has redeemed us. And all of that could only happen if he went through with it and drank the fifth cup. Today we live in a new covenant. A covenant sealed in his blood. That's what we say when we take communion. It reminds us that that God's promise holds true, not just for the Jewish people hundreds of years ago, but for his people today. For people who through faith in Jesus are delivered not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin, who are redeemed, who have been ransomed, who are made whole in him. Amen.